How's the team here? Good. 3X Marines, 1X Army Ranger. It's nice to have another team guy around. Good to see you, brother. Good to be back. How are the kids, Jack? They're good. Yep. They send their love. Can you believe Emily's about to start kindergarten? She's dating yet? Yeah, you better watch your mouth. <laughs> I thank God I got three boys, man. You're in for a rough ride, Jack. Payback's a bitch, and her stripper name is Karma. Did you come up with that on your own? I saw it on a t-shirt in Mexico. <laughs> hey, check this out. Welcome back. Um, we've had some great feedback from that discussion with Celia. I guess that was two weeks ago now. Um, we had excellent feedback and follow-up from that. And I've got um, half a dozen other contacts that I've met in similar ways as I met Celia that have similar levels of maturity and wisdom to share. So um, I'm in the process of trying to line them up. As we go, I basically get inspired on kind of the line of questioning that will guide us and share that with them. And then in Celia's case, she just came back to me and said, all right, let's do this. <laughs> and it's just loose. It's just a loose guide of questions. But uh, but it was a really nice back and forth conversation. Unfortunately, you could only hear one side of it, but I think you got the whole gist. Um, so I hope we can continue to do that more often. Uh, that opening quote is from a, one of my favorite movies of the last couple of years, and that was The 13 Hours in Benghazi. Um, I got a huge kick out of that opening, and I think it's perfectly fitting for where we're at. Um, so today I want to spend some time on the brilliance of the Canadian convoy. Um, I, was, I was inspired when I first saw it. I was excited about it and happy for them. Uh, but I, I see much, much more powerful brilliance here in this movement. So I want to share all the ways I think I think it's positive. I do want to share some new sources. I just just in general terms, I feel like the adults in the room, <laughs> which are mostly you know over twenty five or over thirty. Um, we all have a role to play here in terms of understanding what's happening around us. That's that's kind of the way I've been viewing it, that we're all on a, a form of jury duty. And each adult has a job to play the role of the juror, which means they have to review the expert testimony themselves, review the evidence, and bring their own perspective to bear, continue to evolve as the facts come in. But... Um, but that's how I see it. That's why I, I, I think it's a very important part of my life, understanding what's happening around us and what next steps make sense given the environment. So it, it's I, I think it's really funny when people um, are uncomfortable with that. <laughs> I'm, I'm uncomfortable with anybody that calls himself an adult and doesn't make it their business to understand what's happening all around us um, because it's our future and our kids at stake, basically. 
So uh, that's the analogy that works for me, and that's what keeps me going. And in that in that light, I'd like to share a couple of newer sources. I, I'm not sure. I mean, this isn't a new source to me, but I'm not sure if I've shared Reiner before. Reiner Fulmick, he's doing a grand jury uh, uh, testimony, and they're putting together a case for a grand jury. I don't, I don't know. I think it's international court. I don't know the specifics of the logistics of that, but I am picking up on some of the testimony and some of the hearings, and it's outstanding. It's the most substance. His his scope is outstanding. He's able to broadly see how this whole thing has evolved. He he jumped on this case. I think it was June 2020. He realized as a as a lawyer, I think he might be a constitutional lawyer. Uh, that somebody had to do something. So he and a team and a small team started to gather the evidence to put together a grand jury to ha- to have a case on the crimes against humanity that's been happening worldwide. And so that's what they've been doing. So the, uh, Reiner Fulmick is a huge um, uh, source that I'd like to recommend. I'll share the link, of course. And um, the other one is new from from Del Bigtree's show last week, The High Wire. He shared uh, Armstrong Economics, um, who's a fascinating individual I've never heard of before. He, there was a documentary on him in 2014. He just seems like the uber uh, computer geek who somehow found his calling um, setting up a simulation of, I mean, he's a trader, but he started to, to realize that there's um, that he could forecast events by understanding the markets the way he understood them. And so he built a forecasting uh, system to start to forecast world events. Well, it caught the eyes of a lot of people, including the CIA, um, because it was so precise. Uh, So the film is called The Forecaster from 2014, and his website is called Armstrong Economics. And he's got an unbelievably broad scope um, on what's happening in the world on a regular basis. So I just wanted to share that as well. I haven't seen the film yet, but I can't wait. Um, there's another one that sounded really good. I've heard this week that I'll recommend before seeing it as well. Um, that confident it'll be good is called Berkeley in the '60s, which is sort of covering the timeline of like how some of these, I think they were Christian, outspoken intellectuals in these Ivy League colleges. Uh, speaking out against government, against the Vietnam War, and how they got corrupted, basically, into the hippie hippie and drug culture of the 60s. So I think that'll be fascinating, too. I think you'll be able to see sort of how uh, some aspects of the state were working to undermine uh, credible um, critique of what the state was up to. Uh, so I can't wait for that. But um, uh, before I get to the truckers, I do want to share some good news. Well, it, this is tangential, I guess. It sort of it, it dovetails into the truckers. But but um, some of the things I think that they're going to be highlighting here is that, well, one, the corruption of banks and GoFundMe. I mean, they've just exposed themselves. But I'm hoping that that they'll realize as a community that crypto and Bitcoin are the safest way of moving money around. I think that could be a huge Bitcoin, 
Bitcoin isn't perfect, BTC, but but it's not governed by central banks. So I think there's a lot of hope there. And in the last week or so, they've been rallying nicely. I, I don't know if that's related to the GoFundMe scandal, but the guys I follow at dollarvigilante.com and cryptovigilante, they're the same group, have been predicting for since December that we're going to see crypto and Bitcoin specifically kind of define its own ecosystem coming. They were predicting the end of January. And so it's only within a week or so behind. <laughs> it really seemed in the last week that Bitcoin and a number of the privacy coins that kind of trigger off of Bitcoin started to seem to rally on their own merits. Um, so the way that precious metals are valued on their their own merits, and of course stocks and bonds and um, currencies, it seems like that's what's happening with Bitcoin and the cryptos at the moment. It's too early to say, but that would be, especially if they come to the rescue for the funding of the convoy, it would be all all positive upside in terms of war against the machine, if you will, the central control of banking. And anyway, we'll get into that in a second. I keep trying to ask myself, what's the central battleground to all this? I mean, what's the the controllers? What, what do they get really, really worked up about? And I think, and there was a great episode this morning on James Corbett, CorbettReport.com. Um, I think what their main thing and <laughs> what they're trying to do is two things. They're trying to get people to give up the idea of representative government. So school boards and county sheriff and county commissioners and um, state representatives uh, all the way up to Washington. They're trying to get people to give up on the idea of having a say in what their kids get taught at school and how the kids get taught or get treated at school or how the, the health authority runs locally, these kinds of things, which is another way of saying, taking on, <laughs> taking on the mindset of your oppressors, as Michael Jonoff, Michael Jones office says, you know, th this is the elite mindset that, that, that they want people to believe that they don't have the right to make these decisions in their own life which of course is completely anti-American, but it's been going a long way in a number of these states. So they want people to give up representative government as they bribe, extort, steal, however they're doing it with the, with the local politicians and corrupting these people. Um, blackmail probably. <laughs> and they want to, um, get people comfortable with this Chinese prison, which is like electronic Chinese prison. So everything you do is being tracked by a system. And then it's just a matter of time before they can control what you can and can't do. And that's what the Corbett uh, podcast today was about. Um, biosecurity state, I believe is what it was called, but I'll leave the link. But basically, and I and I, it, this has been slow for me over time trying to get away from these systems. And of course, it's very hard to get completely away. But 
what they have been building <laughs> is people volunteering into these systems. So every time you tell Netflix the content you're watching or how you're making decisions or or maybe you're telling Facebook who your contacts are or, or what you get upset about or these kinds of things, you're helping this entire uh, Chinese prison of electronics to monitor how you function and operate and it will be that much easier to keep you contained. I know that sounds extreme, but this is how it looks to me now. And so when you help these systems understand who you are, what your contacts are, how you make decisions, how your emotions fluctuate, even some of these, um, you know, health monitoring devices, I forget what those are called now. They can integrate all of these things and they can get to understand how to control you. And then all they need is the central digital currency and boom, they can switch your ability to move and function on and off. I didn't know how far, I mean, I've been, I've been overseas for 20 years, well, since 2005. Uh, I didn't know how far, I mean, it's quite common. I'm in a small town and it's, and it's very normal. Most people here are very normal to me, like normal small town, but there are lots of tourists that aren't comfortable talking to a human being. They're more comfortable talking to Siri, if that makes any sense. So they're, they're, they're telling Google where they're driving. They're, t they're asking Siri what they want to know. And they're, they're containing themselves in an atomized existence inside an electronic prison. So they're helping build the walls of their own electronic prison. That's what they're doing each step of the way. Now, I, when a sports game is on or even lot, there's lots of great content on Netflix. So don't get me wrong. It's just that being aware of telling these systems how you function is leading. It, it could lead to containing you. So I, I think the free, the currency moving freely, I don't know, you know, Bitcoin's not the answer for everything, but it's, it's one decentralized, uh, independent currency source, gold and silver are as well. And staying active and informed in your own governance, in your own local community and county. Um, if, if those two things are in place, we should be able to fight off this. <laughs> but what's unfortunately people get, people get bought off. Unfortunately, they get bought off with booze and all kinds of debauchery and they start to and then they get they give in too much of these little temptations like buying something on amazon overnight or what have you you're you're helping the new system build up around you that's that's really what i what what I, the way i see it anyway let's let's get to the, the truckers and the convoy and all the positive aspects of this but but uh I do think it's helpful to, to try and try and see it the way I'm trying to share. Um, well, one thing that's quite interesting, the way my life is evolving at the moment is I'm starting to get one foot sort of back into mainstream, some old friends and some new friends and people that, that haven't been on this journey of Corona vagabond exactly and trying to rethink everything, which is really what I've been doing for two years. 
Um, and it's really fun for me to reconnect with these people, but it's also interesting for me to, to, to observe how they're functioning. And many of them, I, I think I'll be connecting with many more in the next six weeks or so, but many of them are doing what I would call exact opposite of what I've been doing. I've been putting all my energy into trying to understand what's happening around me and how I can best adapt and how I can best make my next steps. And what the people that are trying to stay in the system and seem to be doing is put all their energy into not thinking about this. So not, not seeing the inconsistencies between the different, the different agendas and not seeing <laughs> all the confusion and just trying their damnedest to carry on life the way they had it before. And I, th I think it's got to be really, really difficult. But anyway, um, I love reconnecting with these people. And I see even some of my most mainstream friends, they've got questions and they've got lights coming on. I think it's just a matter of time. Even uh, And even the convoy, this has been nice, even with talking with my own kids and talking with my mainstream friends. I, I, I find it really easy to talk about the convoy because they're just all they're speaking out against is mandate. So uh, to me, you know, who is pro coercion? There aren't that many people that are pro coercion, even people that are well, well jabbed and boosted. They aren't in favor of coercing their coworkers or coercing their kids or coercing their coworkers kids into medical choices. They're not into that for the most part. I'd say there's like 80% of people are aligned behind the idea of no coercion. Um, and so that I, I think makes it really easy. And the convoys helped crystallize that conversation by saying, well, let's just agree. We don't want to raise our kids in a prison planet. So let's just agree. We're all against coercion, right? <laughs> you know, we don't have to have this whole argument about medical choices, medical practices and PCR tests and all these things, which, all are valid, but my God, those are can be endless conversations. If we just start with, let's just agree that we don't want our kids to ra be raised in a prison planet and we're against coercion. That, that's fairly straightforward. So I, I found, so that's one of the, one of the most positive aspects of the convoy so far for me is it's an easy conversation starter, but it's a place that most people agree on. So I'll just first share i did have some a little bit of cynicism i guess or skepticism it's more skepticism at the very beginning it was just like whoa this thing looks like it's globally coordinated which makes me you know question mark there's an illuminati card around the convoy so you know there's another question mark um and then and then the kind of if i can call it the demand sounded kind of vague at the beginning so i had these concerns of you know is this going to be a heartbreaking, you know, get the hopes up and then, but anyway, as things have progressed for two weeks or so, um, I can only see good things. And I think it's mostly because it's a heart centered initiative. It's a, it's a, and that's what the controllers can't get their heads around. They can't control heart centered intelligence. So the motivation and inspiration that these truckers have been, have been inspiring or not just across Canada, but across the world is really, really incredible. Um, so there's that. 
they're free agents, you know, as in terms of independent businessmen, they're free agents. So they're in charge of their lives in that sense. They are mobile, obviously, 18 weavers, you know, they park it, 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 it makes a statement. Um, and they're good at surviving on the road. So they've got all these incredible good things. Now I think this GoFundMe thing is going to get people talking about crypto, which I think is a good thing. Um, and I think, I think the other thing that's happening with me anyway, is it's going to get people talking about CBs. Let's get on the radios with our local contacts. I think that that's, you know, much less corruptible and uh, surveillance oriented. I mean, I'm sure it's easy to listen, but I think that it's much less likely to be spied on the way that some of these chats and apps can be spied on. So I just think there's so many good benefits. I, I don't know yet, besides just some moral support and a little bit of um, funding and, and gifts and things that are going up to the, to the border. I'm not sure yet what my role is, but but I'm extremely supportive. And there's a great network here where I am um, that's the same. They're moral support. They're bringing supplies. They, they don't know exactly what role they want to play yet for the Canadians, but they're in favor and supportive. And I think that's fantastic. It's starting to mobilize more across USA. I don't know how that's going to go, but it's really quite cool because, you know, Canadians are so um, generally non-offensive and polite that the truckers doing what they're doing has just inspired everybody worldwide. So that's fantastic. Um, there's lots of ways, of course, that can be corrupted and, and um, subverted. But I, the, what I've seen in the last week or so, farmers are coming up. Local people are coming up, are, are supporting, uh, joining. And just maybe yesterday was this. There's mariners, there's people in the ships that are supporting. Um, and, and then when you think about local police, I mean, they're much more kindred spirits with truck, local truckers than they are with Ottawa. So I can't wait until, until that could flip a switch. The RCMP actually confronted, it was an actual standoff, physical standoff with the truckers. This might be seven or eight days ago up in Coots, Alberta. And the Mounties had to back down. They didn't have the numbers. They didn't have the resolve. The truckers stood them down. So I just, I don't know exactly how it's going to play out, but their heart is in the right place and they seem to be communicating effectively and against coercion is something everyone worldwide can get behind. So I just, I, I can't wait to see how this plays out and I hope I can, hope I can help in more ways than moral support. Now I just really want to wrap up with, um, it's, it's a long piece, so I'm going to keep mine short today. But um, it's a piece from Michael Jones, and he kind of has, I think it's taken him himself some time to hone in on this linchpin. So he's a, he's an English professor by profession, but he's become an editor and a researcher. And a lot of his research has led him toward history. And so he's, he's built this wealth of books, um, history-based books, and... It, only in the last couple of months, he's kind of honed in on this one particular moment in history at the end of World War II that has been unbelievably critical in helping to shape 
the agenda that we're all living in still today. Uh, so I'll let him explain how that's happened, but it's essentially um, a dramatic and significant shift away from Christianity and towards elitism and elitism control of the mainstream narrative. And that's still what we're living today and the corruption all around that. <laughs> so I'll let him explain how that journey transpired in his in his journey. And uh, I think it's unbelievably critical. And uh, look forward to bringing another guest soon to talk through this uh, situation, um, hopefully within the next week or so. And uh, let's keep uh, honking. All right. Take care. See you. Talk to you soon. and as painful as it is, Logos is definitely rising. But what I'm trying, what I'm starting to realize is that it's not just about Ratzinger. It's about the whole world that Ratzinger lived through, the whole, the cataclysm that Ratzinger lived through. And mm -hmm. obviously everybody knows that he was involved, uh, dragged into World War II as a teenager uh, in some type of suicidal flak uh, uh, brigade that would have gotten him killed if they had ever seen any type of action. Uh, but I'm starting to realize, uh, and this is after, I mean, living in Germany, knowing Ratzinger, reading him for years, uh, the, the whole thing uh, that we just don't understand. No one really understands that era uh, because it's been completely suppressed and it's been suppressed by a narrative that was created after the fact to justify American war crimes. That's and what the, I'm saying. And the the crushing of Germany's national spirit after World War II. Absolutely. To, so we're to, talking to blame, about... To blame every man, woman, and child for the Holocaust, right. for instance. Right. And we're talking about a, a, a concerted attempt at genocide. And no one talks about this because what we're talking about here is the Morgenthau plan. Uh, the Franklin Delano Roosevelt's Jewish... Uh, Secretary of State, uh, I'm sorry, Secretary of the Treasury, uh, consumed with uh, Jewish vengeance, the desire for Jewish vengeance against the German people, who felt that the German people were guilty, not the Nazis, but that the German people and that the German people should be punished and the German people should be exterminated. Now, this is not an exaggeration. There were people who, uh, Mr. Neiser was writing books like uh, Germany Must Be uh, Destroyed, uh, Germania Delenda Est. Uh, uh, and Morgenthau was involved in starving the German people to death. That's the Morgenthau plan. Okay, nobody's talking about this. One person who understood what was going on at the time was Cardinal Frings of Cologne, mm -hmm. who stood up courageously to the Americans and uh, basically told the Germans, if they have food in their warehouses, you can go in and take that food, and it's not theft. And the same goes with coal, because you're freezing to death and they have no right to deprive you of this type of thing. And as a result of him standing up and other factors, uh, the Morgenthau plan got scrapped. OK, to, uh, the, the adults in the room realized, wait a minute, we're going to hand uh, Germany to the Soviets if we keep going this way. And so they came up with the Marshall Plan. But my point here is uh, that the Marshall Plan was ruthless in its own way. So. 
Joseph Ratzinger is 20 years old in 1947. 1947, 46, 47, the winner is called Das Hungerjahr in German. German history, official German history, the type of thing you get in textbooks in the schools, Das Hungerjahr, uh, which is the Morgenthau plan. And uh, so uh, did he know that he was hungry in 1920? You know when you're hungry, whether you're hungry when you're two months old, okay? And he's 20 years old. Now, there was, there was a, little, a little mediating factor. He was in the seminary, and the seminary was in rural Bavaria, and rural Bavaria had its own source of food, okay? So it wasn't as bad as if you were in Munich, because it was really bad there. So he grew up with this, and then mm -hmm. he's, he comes, then we have the, uh, the Marshall Plan. Well, the Marshall Plan was just a more sophisticated version of destroying Germany. And by that, I mean social engineering. And by social engineering, I mean what I talked about, libido dominandi, uh, which is basically using sex to control the people. Uh, Germany was flooded with pornography, flooded with pornography uh, under the Marshall Plan. As soon as they had new currency, it was flooded with pornography. And there was a, uh, they were going toe to toe, uh, the church against the American occupying powers because the occupying powers were complicit in this. There was a Jew from New York City by the name of David Mordecai Levy. Any German who wanted to get something published or performed had to get a license from this man. And to get that license, you had to lie down on his couch and tell him what bad people the Germans were and talk about the guilt and internalize that narrative. Now, this is the world that Ratzinger is formed in. And I'm saying we simply did not, we don't understand the magnitude of what's going on here, the magnitude of the uh, of the social engineering that was imposed on the German people at that point. So I'm saying it comes up to go ahead, go ahead, right, go ahead. I've talked enough. I, no, I just wanted to know if it's known what uh, young father uh, Ratzinger's attitude was toward the movement uh, typified or led by Cardinal Frings against what's the German phrase? Schmutz und Schmunt, the Schmutz, smut and filth. Schmutz und Schmunt. I, it, so, so you can read, read Zewald, uh, you can read his autobiography, and you won't find out because he ain't, he ain't going to tell you. I've been through this before. I dealt with uh, Werner Heisenberg. Now, this is the man who was at the top of the heap when Ratzinger was a young man. This was the man who symbolized the new Germany. Uh, and I said, uh, he simply ignored it. This was this is, in, this is the Nobel Prize winner in right, physics. Right, yeah. in physics. He was the the kind of the leading light, the man who took over after World War II as the epitome of the new Germany. And his daughter uh, wrote to me and just chewed me out because what do you, why should my father be interested in schmutz und schund? Well, that's the typical attitude. I'm saying that's exactly what I'm trying to say here. And so I think where you find this out is when you go to theological highlights. Don't go to the biography because don't go to Zaval because he'll never tell you this type of stuff. It's always the sanitized version here, including uh, the the uh, uh, when Zaval brings up Georg Ratzinger, his great uncle. Yeah, not the brother, his great uncle. No, right? the great uncle who was famous. And what about your great uncle? Oh, he was a character. And that next question. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop. Stop. Your great uncle is now known as an anti-Semite. Uh, your holiness, is your great uncle an anti-Semite? Why didn't Zewald ask this question? Well, so you got, here's Joseph back 
Morgenthau, the Jew Morgenthau, is starving the German people to death. This is the Ratzinger family sitting around the table. What would Uncle Georg have to say about this? Well, he wrote a book called Jewish Business Practices, Judicious Evangelism. Do you mean to tell me that the Ratzinger family didn't talk this way? Well, go fast forward to theological highlights. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about basically hijacking the Vatican Council. And he did mm -hmm. it. He succeeded. Be, he, because, okay, he shows up in Bonn, 1959. Frings hears about him. Bonn is close to uh, Cologne. Frings hears about him. He invites him to be the Peritus down in uh, Rome. And then Ratzinger really takes it seriously because he starts writing the speeches that are basically going to destroy the Vatican Council as it was intended to be. And by that, I mean Ottaviani's preliminary documents. So mm -hmm. when you when you read it, you, you get this code type of stuff of like, well, this is the outmoded way of dealing with the past. Aren't we tired of these anti-modernist condemnations? Don't we need a new way forward? Well, this is this is Germany speaking. Yeah, and that's that is another way of describing synodality. Absolutely, a new, new, new way forward. Absolutely, I think you're absolutely right. I think yeah. that's exactly where synodality came from. And it was a Frankenstein monster that Ratzinger created. And now it's going to devour not only him, but the church. And now, whereas St. Paul repeatedly says faith comes by hearing, synodality says faith comes by listening. Right. Right. So now we, now this monster, uh, now who is, who is the man? I think uh, Walter Kaspar is the classic instance of what we're talking about here because yeah. he took the idea of synodality and he ran with it. Well, we've already had a rehearsal for this, haven't we? What was the synod mm. on the family? Let me, so here we are. Here is the entire, we're going to talk about the family. What does the, what do the people of God really want? Well, it turns out that they want what Walter Kasper wants and the German bishops want, which is basically let's let the divorced and remarried uh, receive communion. Now, why is that a German thing? Well, because the Germans, church gets money from the state called the Kirchensteuer. And that depends on how many bodies you have in the pews. So if people are not coming to church because they can't go to communion, that's a serious dent in your uh, financial, your, your financial well-being. And correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, but that uh, if a German Catholic does not pay that, he's excommunicated. Uh, and, uh, as you know I, that's true? I, no, no, no. It's not something you pay. Okay, what you do, what the German Catholic does is he goes to the local whatever and says, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm leaving the Catholic Church. Okay, and that's an official statement that he makes. It's registered there at the local office, goes up to the top, and they cut, okay, one less Catholic, one less Catholic. So if you have an enormous numbers of Catholics leaving, it's a big drop in the money. You, you, they get that, mm -hmm. the church gets that money directly from the state. So all Germans pay taxes. Uh, but the state is the one that determines what the Kirchensteuer is going to be based on the percentage of Catholics uh, gotcha. there. Yeah. So, yeah. So it becomes uh, almost a, a, uh, a bank with holy water thrown on it. Right. Right. And the Germans are very powerful throughout the world. Uh, I, I, if you go to Africa, you'll notice how powerful the Germans are through their charities. They're there. 
on the ground in Africa doing lots of good work. I don't want to deny the fact that they're doing good work. I've been there. I've seen what they're doing. And it looks non-ideological to me, just, just uh, decent work. But that doesn't change the structure here. And basically what we're talking about is the ideological occupation of the German Catholic mind through social engineering. And because of Vatican II, it got imposed on the entire church. That's what I'm saying. What's the role of John Paul II in all this, Dr. Jones? Because he, he elevated Casper um, and, and McCarrick and Ratzinger, kept Ratzinger as the longtime loyal lieutenant as the prefect of the congregation for the doctrine of the faith. Wasn't it in Mainz, Germany, where John Paul II first kind of coins the phrase that the Jews are our elder brothers? Right. Was that, was that proclamation first made in, in a synagogue in Mainz? Am I, I think I, I think you're right. I think you're right. I think it was early on, like 1980, something like that. Yeah, that's I, I think you're right. That's a, a maxim that kind of, tr you know, rumbles by like a train car. I yeah. don't think by, about by it. The, by the way, the Jews don't like it anymore. Uh, because once you look at the Bible, the elder brothers are always nasty people. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Joseph, like Joseph was the younger brother. <laughs> Wait a minute. Oi, oi. He's talking about Cain and Abel. Oi. I didn't notice that. That's too funny. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so so you've got a yeah, this is that's a really interesting <laughs> question. Like, what is the relationship, the difference between Voitia, Voitiwa, and Ratzinger? I think it's a difference between a Pole and a German. I think that this was a man, uh, Voitiva was a man who was focused like a laser from the moment he became Pope. And there was one thing he was focused on, and that was communism. And everybody knew that communism was bad, and everybody knew that the Poles had suffered. The Poles had credibility. They had suffered under the Nazis. They had suffered under the communists. And now solidarity comes along. And lo and behold, we have a Polish pope. And there's this huge, I was there when it happened, you know, this huge outburst of Catholic solidarity, Catholic pride, mm -hmm. uh, ethnic pride. And also it coincided with uh, Ronald Reagan and the Republican Party. He was also was an anti-commie. It was, it was the culmination of the anti-communist crusade. And I thought it was great. Yeah. And, and Thatcher. Thatcher. I didn't like her. But anyway. Well, she was uh, part it, of the it, trifecta. She it was. was. There's, no, there's no denying. And there was this kind of sense. Everything was, all the stars were in alignment. And you could be, damn it, you could be a, a Catholic. You could be a Republican. You could be what, and it was all in alignment. And it, it, everything was focused and everything was great. And on top of that, uh, Vojtivo was a right guy. I mean, he gave us he gave a speech in Philadelphia, which was one of the seminal moments of his papacy, because I was here. I uh, grew up in Philadelphia and I was now at St. Mary's College shortly before I got fired. And he gave a speech in which he talked about uh, church and state and the interpretation of Dignitatis Humanae, which was brilliant. It was absolutely brilliant. Mm -hmm. And it saved the Vatican Council. It saved it. It saved that document where a lot of people were saying this may be including the Lefebvreites. Uh, we're saying it's a break in tradition. And he showed brilliantly how, how it was not. So uh, I, this, this is my fantasy, okay? If, if, if Wojtyla can be a Polish patriot, then why can't Ratzinger be a German patriot? 
You know, charity begins at home, right? Charity begins at home. So Wojtyla comes in and he rescues the Polish nation, liberates the Polish nation. God bless them. And we all cheered. Ratzinger comes in. What should, this is my fantasy now, what should Ratzinger have done? He should have liberated the German nation. From what? From guilt. From guilt. And from the tentacles of the, of the American empire. Yes. And one, one external and one internal. Right. And so remember the Regensburg speech? Yes. Powerful speech. Uh, mm -hmm. Immediately pissed off 1.2 billion Muslims. Immediately. And caused a lot of stir in Munich. This was his homecoming. This was to Germany what Wojtyla going to Warsaw in 1979. That was an epic-making moment. That was six months after the Ayatollah Khomeini had taken over the, revol the revolution in Iran, had taken over Iran. And that's the rebellion against the great Satan and American imperialism. And now Wojtyla follows suit. And this is the revolution against Soviet materialism. That was e a huge, epic making, huge, epic yeah. making moment, epic making yeah. moment. So what, let's go. Ratzinger goes to Munich. He's going home. This is the local boy that made good. And the speech he gives should have been about, oh no, we can't talk about that. It should have been about guilt. It should have been about German guilt. And it should have said something to the effect of, yeah, if you commit a sin, you incur guilt. Okay. And if you go to confession, uh, God will forgive your sins and you will be restored. Now, if someone is, but the other thing is that people can manipulate guilt. Okay. And there's one group that has been manipulating German guilt ever since the end of the war. And we have to identify that group. And it's the Jews. And they have created a narrative that has crippled the German people because what we had, uh, we, we were a conquered nation. We were defenseless. We had to rebuild from ground zero. And at that moment, they imposed this ruthless storm of social engineering on us that made us feel guilty about things that we should not feel guilty about.
So oh. 